The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so let us uh, get started. And uh, the first one uh, is as follows. Dear Ajahn, uh, question number one. Could you please clarify for me the difference between the path and the fruit, uh, i.e. for uh, Sotapanna? Okay, the path and the fruit, what is the difference? Um, <laughs> uh, the, the fruit is actually when you become a stream enter, yeah? So when you attain the fruit, that's when you become a Sotapanna. Uh, when you attain the fruit, that's when you become a Sakadagami, once returner. Uh, uh, that's when you actually achieve that level. In other words, that's when the fetters, uh, the things that bind you to Sangsara, that's when they fall away when you attain the fruit. Uh, the path is when you uh, enter upon an irreversible path uh, to attain that fruit. So there comes a point, there comes a moment when suddenly you enter, you enter that path and you know that you will attain that fruit in this life, sometime in this life, uh, at the very latest when you die. Uh, so that is the path. Yeah? And sometimes the path is difficult to know whether you have achieved it or not. Uh, there isn't kind of any necessarily clear signs. Uh, but the fruit has a very clear sign because that is when you uh, destroy, or destroy is maybe too violent a word, but that's when you make an end of these fetters, uh, these things that attach you, or hold you on to samsaric existence, doubt, uh, sakaya ditti, the uh, personality view, and these things. Uh. Okay, um, question number two. Given that there are many different uh, diligent nuns and monks practicing, but so few arahants in the world, uh, it is somewhat daunting for a layperson to even make it to the uh, uh, first uh, base, i.e. Sotapanna. Appreciate some more words of encouragement from you. <laughs> My deceased teacher used to say, simply keep up the practice with metta and appreciation. Uh, don't worry too much about uh, uh, whether you are a Sotapanna or whether you have attained anything at all. I think this always becomes problematic if we focus too much on these goals. Uh, the only goal you should practice, focus on, and this is what the Buddha recommended us to focus on, is whether you are making progress or not. Uh, that is the only thing that matters. Uh, and if you are making steady progress, uh, one day the result has to come as a consequence of making progress. Uh, and that is the right way. Otherwise, uh, there's too much craving involved and then you st start to see sotapati in yourself even though it hasn't actually arisen yet. Uh, you see the jhanas. Yeah, I got the jhanas even though they aren't there because basically you crave them so much, you create them even though they haven't actually happened. Uh, it's a very common experience. People think they have these things uh, when they haven't and that is a big hindrance on the path there. So just make progress and then see what happens. Uh, and the, to the way to measure progress is always in terms of the qualities that you have. Uh, every year uh, when you go on retreat or every year, uh, well, you know, whatever you do, you should see some kind of increase in mindfulness, uh, uh, more gentleness inside, less defilements, less anger, less ill will, less desire, more peace uh, and all of these things. And if you see that happening, uh, and it's not that hard to... You can, you can basically see this going on. Uh, and if you see that's happening, then you know you're heading in the right direction. Uh, it's only a matter of time before you get all of the results of this path. Uh. Yes, that's all that matters. Uh, so focus on that. Uh. And uh, it is only a problem. If those things don't happen, that's when you have a problem. Uh. And uh, that's when you have to kind of investigate very carefully within yourself. What is it that's blocking you from achieving these things? Uh. Some t too often we focus on uh, like states, yeah. I, I've had you have one state of samadhi, and you think, yeah, I had a state of samadhi, and then it doesn't happen again afterwards. You had one experience, but the path doesn't really develop. Uh, it doesn't actually make much difference if that's what happens. Uh, yeah, that that one experience is not actually going to uh, take you anywhere. Yeah. So you need much more important to develop all these qualities steadily. Yeah. That's when you're heading in the right direction. Yeah. That's when you know everything is fine. Yeah. So uh, that is. Uh, Really, it. So don't worry about whether it's daunting or not, or whether it is difficult or not. Just keep keep practicing, and you you will have to get there eventually. Ajahn, I am married to a very very attractive person, <laughs> who is always attracting others. I find myself 
threatened and jealous what to do in my practice. <laughs> this is the problem, isn't it? You find finally you get married to someone really nice and then you get jealous about them. You can't really win, can you? you it's just it's it's always it's a downside regardless of what happens. You find the best person in the world and then that becomes a problem too. So uh, I guess what you have to do is you have to uh, you have to not, <laughs> ideally, this is the problem. Yeah, if someone is attractive, you get attached. That kind of goes together. But ideally, you wouldn't be so attached. So do death contemplation, remember impermanence, remember that uh, that relationship is going to have to end one day anyway, regardless of even if you stay together for life, it's still going to happen. Yeah. So uh, in a sense, you just have to uh, uh, kind of almost... Um, imagine that the person has already left you and already they're not really your partner already they are gone already it is as if they are dead it was a bit like when my father passed away I already had kind of made it so clear in my mind that he was dying and he could die at any moment that when I got the phone call I wasn't even surprised I was oh yeah I expected that I'm actually surprised he lasted that long and uh, it's a bit like that yeah? so when he leaves you or she leaves you or whatever it is then you just uh, say that, uh, well, that's what I expected, yeah, gone, okay, one day here, one next day gone. Uh, so you have to, uh, not to kind of uh, attach so much. I know this is very difficult in a relationship because relationships are kind of based very often on a degree of attachment, uh, but uh, ideally that's what you do, and then you won't grieve, you won't be too sad when that relationship eventually ends. So it is always the desires and attachments that lead to jealousy. So it's the only way to reduce the jealousy is really to reduce those desires and attachments. And by practicing the spiritual path, yeah, by coming here, you are already reducing those desires and attachment to some extent because that's what the spiritual path does. You become more independent. Yeah, this is kind of one of those beautiful things about the spiritual path people sometimes forget about. When you have built up your inner happiness, your inner good qualities, uh, actually you become less dependent of those qualities from the outer world. Uh, and because of that, it makes you more independent as a person. Attachments go down. Uh. You cannot force attachments to go, uh, but they can reduce in this way by building up the inner qualities instead. Uh. Okay, and I'm sure that isn't all that much help, but it, these things are... <laughs> These things are inherently difficult, yeah, and this is kind of part of the problem. You can only do things very gradually and slowly here. Dear Ajahn, thank you for your wonderful teachings. If I cannot see the proof of the reincarnation, how could I build up the faith in the afterlife? Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> so... Um, Basically, the way to do that is to have confidence in the Buddha and the Buddhist teachings. The more confidence you have in the Buddhist teachings, the more confidence you will also have in rebirth, because the Buddha says that there is rebirth. So just keep on studying these teachings, and the more you feel that the Buddha knew that he was talking about, that the Buddha really was a supreme spiritual guide, the more you see that, the more easily it, easy it will be for you to also accept the idea of reincarnation or rebirth. Because it's part and parcel of the whole thing here. And uh, I always say that the most powerful evidence for uh, rebirth, uh, uh, there is all this kind of scientific uh, evidence that we sometimes talk about, but the most powerful one uh, is the fact that the Buddha said there is rebirth. Uh, that to me is the most powerful one. Uh, it is what you might call anecdotal evidence. Uh, anecdotal evidence is when somebody says something happened, they say, yeah, I saw this happening. Uh, that's kind of anecdotal evidence. Uh, it is not normally considered proper scientific evidence at all. But uh, it is evidence nevertheless, because people have seen something. Uh, and if the Buddha says so, it is the highest caliber of anecdotal evidence. Uh, and to me, it is very powerful. Uh, so this is how you do it. You don't actually have to see rebirth for yourself. Uh, just uh, uh, having that confidence is really enough. Uh, you never know that there is rebirth, uh, but you don't actually need to know if you uh, feel strongly enough about it. That's good enough on the path uh, that's what I would do, and uh, that's how, what most people do, I think. So uh, try that out. Dear Arjan, could you please help me think of some positive qualities for Donald Trump? 
so that I can have metta for him, not just, not just compassion. Thank you with metta. <laughs> yeah, well, as I said, sometimes you just have to have compassion. Yeah? And you <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure Donald Trump ha- has some good qualities. I'm sure that those people who are close to him, he, you know, his, his daughter and, and whoever it is, there are, there are some good qualities there. I, it is, uh, we are too far removed, really, from someone to Donald Trump to really be able to appreciate a person like that properly. Uh, but you cannot write someone off uh, uh, completely just like that. But uh, in this case, I would just have, uh, I think, compassion is a very useful quality in this particular case, because... Uh, <laughs> simply because, I, I, you know, he, he's basically... To me, it is so obvious that he's the wrong man in the wrong job, you know? He, he got the job more or less by accident. He should never be there. And he, he just out of his depth, and he doesn't know what he's doing. And that's pretty sad, yeah? So he, I don't even know if he actually wanted to be president. There's some speculation that he just did this as a kind of PR gimmick or something like that. And of course, the whole thing is just a disaster. So in that case, I think compassion is kind of the obvious, the obvious answer. That's what I would do in this case. So, uh, anyway, that's, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Dear Ajahn Brahmali, thank you very much for your teachings. I really like the example of being a passenger on a train, being a passive observer. I've also adapted your simile of red lights, where I think of my breath and attention as a red light, so I don't get frustrated if my attention wavers. Uh, okay, that's that's good. So your attention is also conditioned. That's exactly right. Uh, and your condition, your attention wavers precisely because uh, you are not in control of it. So that's a good uh, good point. Uh, during meditation, occasionally sensual thoughts arise and stir up my mind. Uh, without establishing mindfulness, uh, my mind habitually stokes the flames of desire and ill will. Uh, I have noted that I still see these fantasies as pleasurable, despite knowing the downsides and reading the suttas. I've come to realize that delusion distorts my view, that my thoughts, feelings, preferences are unreliable. That's exactly right. That's already a very good start. As it says in the Dhammapada, the person who does not know that they are deluded or ignorant is really deluded, but the person who knows that they are deluded or ignorant, at least they are wise to that extent. So just having some understanding of your own delusion actually is very, very useful already, because then there is a way out. If you have no understanding of that, there is no way out. What confuses me is this. If feelings, preferences, thoughts are not reliable, how do I know what to trust when searching for answers? For example, when being kind, I feel good and happy. It seems a bit silly to even ask this, this as we inherently know that kindness leads to happiness, but by turning my attention inwards and watching my heart, uh, how do I trust what is good and bad? Okay. So, uh, uh, what do you have to do is that you already have some idea of what is good and bad in this world. Sometimes it's very obvious that something is bad. Sometimes you have thoughts that are you know, re- inherently violent or whatever, and you know those are bad things that lead to bad results. It is really when you come to the more refined things that it is sometimes hard to distinguish between what is good and bad. Uh, but really, the way to the one way to do this is uh, if you have to make a decision, if you are uncertain because you feel that your mind is swayed by emotions or by feelings or by vested interests and by attachments and all of these kind of things, uh, then don't make a decision at that time. Uh, don't trust what is going in in your mind when. Uh, these feelings are there because you, that is quite right at that time. It is uh, inherently unreliable. Uh, yeah, it is just going to be bad. So what you have to do at times like that uh, is that you have to wait, uh, wait for the mind to become clear, wait for the emotions to die down, and when you feel peaceful, you feel you have clarity. Maybe you know, at, during a retreat like this is often a good time to take stock of your life and to look at the problems in your life, uh, because often you have far more clarity during a retreat like this than you have in your ordinary life. Uh. So now at the end of the retreat, you can kind of think back a little bit and think, well, 
what can I do differently in my life? How can I change my life to make it more conducive to the spiritual practice and all of these kind of things? Because now you have the clarity. When you are in the middle of things, it's far more difficult. So wait till you have clarity. Only then make decisions about anything, because then you have some idea what you are doing, what you are dealing with. Uh, then when it comes to uh, knowing the... Uh, what is good and bad to a large extent when it comes to the more refined things uh, you have to trust in part the word of the buddha so the buddha would for he will tend to say that one of the problems is going to be attachments to the body or to the five senses uh, yeah so you know that or you know that you have attachments to the world and you know the world is unreliable you already have some insight into that uh, so you develop those perceptions because of trust uh, in the teaching of the buddha yeah, so some degree of trust and faith in these teachings is very useful. And then you develop perceptions on that basis. And then as you do that, you find that your defilements will decline. And then you get more, even more clarity. You have more insight into what is going on. And you carry on like this, gradually, gradually chipping away at the defilements and delusion of the mind. And over the years, you find clarity grows you have more clarity about what's going on. You understand yourself much better and you know what you have to do uh, as a consequence of that. Uh, this is what I have found in my own life, clarity gradually arising uh, over the years, seeing things more clearly. Uh, and the same thing will happen, uh, happen for everyone here. I'm sure it's happening already for many of you, but uh, you continue doing that. Uh, and then uh, these things, uh, uh, this, is what, what, this is how I think is, a, is a certainly one way of doing this. Uh, have I doubted myself into a hole? <laughs> Do you recommend continuing to watching my mind and heart to distinguish the feelings that arise when doing something good versus uh, fantasizing? Um, the most important one is to distinguish between doing something good and doing something bad. Yeah? Feel the power of goodness and feel the power of badness. And uh, you can bring in fantasizing as well if you like uh, but um, uh, the, feeling the power of goodness is actually the most important one because if you know what it feels like to do good actions uh, and the peace and the beauty that comes from that uh, it will encourage you to do the right thing here yeah. if you look at what fantasizing does to you uh, yeah if you fantasize about uh, these things that you mentioned here usually leaves you tired it leaves you kind of empty afterwards it doesn't go anywhere uh, and it's just frustrating. It doesn't actually have any, any positive outcome at all. Uh, so just watch that. Uh, yeah, If you're going to enjoy sensual pleasures, enjoy them. But don't fantasize about them because that just leaves you kind of feeling frustrated. It's kind of useless. Uh. Or do I use wholesome versus unwholesome states as a guideline to know whether I'm the right path and not trusting my feelings uh, altogether? Uh, use both. Uh. Yeah, uh, have the idea of wholesome and unwholesome, uh, what these mean, uh, and also look at how they affect your mind and your feelings as well. Uh, so use as many kind of uh, points as possible to kind of to, to help you in the right direction. Uh. But uh, again, remember the idea of having a clear mind is so important. Uh, so when, once the fantasy is there, already you are biased, already you have no clarity, already you have a problem. So that is really of not the time to find the solutions to these things. You may be able to see a little bit, be able to see that it leads to frustration or whatever, but already you will be biased once you enter these kind of fantasies. Apologies for this long-winded question. Thank you for your advice, patience and tolerance. In many ways, listening to you straightforward teaching has helped me out of a very difficult point in my life. And I sincerely thank you from the bottom of my heart. I hope we will get to meet again next year. Okay, yes, I, we shall see. We, sh we never know what will happen next year. But uh, there is a reasonable chance that uh, I will be coming back next year. I think I have already been invited to come back next year. And once you are invited, then uh, the chances are much greater than if you are not invited. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's see what happens. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Ajahn, practicing uh, now uh, the resentment positive qualities meditation, and it is working. 
Okay, good. So I am more easily uh, returning to my breath. In my work, I do have to be careful of pit bull types <laughs> and how to see the positive but not be a doormat. Yes, so you, it, that is true. I, you know, you, when you see the positive qualities in other people, the main thing is what you do with your mind. That's the most important thing. It is an inner thing so that you don't give rise to anger and that sort of thing. It is to, it's to basically to protect your own mind state is the most important thing. Yeah. What you do externally is, uh, uh, is not, doesn't matter that much, especially to the pit bull types. Stay away from them. Yeah, don't try to kind of have a, lots of meta in the face because you might end up, as you say, uh, ending up with problems because of that. Uh, so remember, this is most an inner thing that you do with your own mind. Uh, of course, it is good to be kind to people. It is good to be do all of those things we're talking about. Uh, so please do that. But also know the right time for kindness, uh, the right people in the right circumstances. Don't kind of, you know, try to do the impossible. Don't try to be the bodhisattva when you are, you know, still just starting out on the path. Uh, so protect yourself. We all need to protect ourselves. If we don't protect ourselves, it's actually going to become a hindrance on the path because you can only do so much, really. We have to know our limitations. So I hope that uh, answers that question. <coughs> Dear Adzan, why kindness is so important? How, how, does it do, what does it, how does it do to the mind? Thank you. Why kindness is so important? Uh, it is so important because basically you feel good about yourself if you live a life of kindness. Uh, if you live a kind of meanness and nastiness and uh, all that kind of thing, uh, try that. Try, you know, look at yourself when you do something nasty to someone else, uh, especially if you do it deliberately and you think, yeah, I hate this person, I'm going to give him a hard time, and you feel a bit nasty inside afterwards. Uh, you don't feel good about yourself. Uh, and this is what I mean by kamma in the present life. You can actually feel, if you are sensitive and you watch carefully, you can very, not always perhaps, but you can often feel the consequences of your actions straight away. So feel what it feels like to be kind. Feel what it feels like to do an act of generosity when you feel really inspired and you want to give to something. And it's often a very beautiful feeling here. I don't know if it has happened to you, but sometimes it's as if your heart just opens up and you want to give to the whole world. And then when you give something, it is just incredibly powerful. A simple act of generosity can be so, such a beautiful experience. So uh, this is why we should be kind. And then when you come down and you sit in your meditation practice, uh, because you are kind, because you don't have any ill will because you don't have too many desires also. This is part of the kindness because when we talk about kindness we, in Buddhism we expand it out to also include the mental qualities. Yeah? Uh, so because of that we actually are already quite peaceful and we feel quite content inside of ourselves. We don't feel that we have all this kind of negative baggage that we have dragged with us because we haven't been living very well here. So this is the purpose of kindness. It just creates a more peaceful and pleasant life for yourself, most importantly for yourself, but also for people around you. One of the ways of thinking about a spiritual quality or a Buddhist quality, anything which is good for you and also good for other people, that is a spiritual quality. If you are generous, it's good for others because they are the recipients of your generosity, also good for you. If you're kind, exactly the same thing. Other people like to be around kind people, and it's good for you as well. Yeah, compassion, all of these qualities are good for you and good for others. And that is the hallmark of a spiritual quality. Practice those spiritual qualities. Don't practice the worldly qualities. Selfishness is a worldly quality. Yeah, you're looking after yourself and you don't care so much about other people. In fact, you kind of don't worry too much about them at all. That is a selfish quality where there's no compassion. Ill will is a selfish quality because you're thinking about yourself and not others. So this is, a, this is why kindness is so fundamental on the Buddhist path. It is so fundamental to everything. Without that, you are going to be stuck in your spiritual practice. So do that to the absolute maximum. Every moment of the day matters. Every time you take a step wrong, you will take steps wrong sometimes. So please Forgive yourself if, that, if you do that. But remember, every time you go wrong, you take a step backwards on the path. Uh, there's no time to take steps backwards. Uh, life is so short. Uh, there's only time really to take, take steps forward. Uh, 
If you remember that, you'll have a lot of mindfulness on your mind, on your actions, uh, to ensure that you always do the right thing to the maximum of your possibility. Uh. Like the Buddha said, there's a beautiful simile in the suttas that I don't think I've ever actually read out. But the Buddha said we should act as if our hair or our turban is on fire. Yeah, in those days they had turbans. So you should act as if your, hair, your turban is on fire. Now, If your turban is on fire, you're going to act pretty quickly. If you don't, you've had it. Yeah, you're finished. So in the same way, uh, now, right now is the chance, right now is the opportunity to act. Uh, so you act now so, because you, your, your turban is on fire. You have this chance to do what is right. Uh. Okay, dear Ajahn, thank you for the afternoon Dhamma talk. My sister is exactly like what described in the sutta, the one whose bodily and verbal behavior are impure and does not gain an opening of the mind from time to time. Oh, okay. <clears throat> At least she is like that in my perception. She refuses to seek treatments or accept Dhamma and causes so much pain in the family. What should I do to help her appreciate your advice? Thank you. What you should do to help her is to uh, accept her as she is. Yeah, uh, don't. Uh, I, I'm sure many people find fault with her already all the time. Probably everyone is telling her how terrible she is and what she should do to change. So uh, instead of trying to go down that path, which obviously doesn't work, uh, try to be accepting instead. Uh, sometimes the conditioning is so strong that she probably can't help herself. Uh, she has to be like that. Uh, she can't do anything else. Uh, and because of that, she needs some other kind of conditioning to get her on the right track. And that conditioning sometimes is just to be kind to her and to accept her for what, it is, what she is. I remember that beautiful story with Ajahn Brahm when he went to see Lumpur Tet, one of the very famous monks in Thailand, who many people say was an arahant. And he went to see him, and then he comes to his monastery, and he has this enormous hall called the Mandapa, and this was built by the king because he was so famous. The king built him this enormous hall, uh, very ornate, very beautiful, one of this Thai, classical Thai architecture, which often is very, very beautiful and uh, uh, aesthetically pleasing. Uh. So he comes to this mandapa and he goes inside hoping to meet this very famous monk. Uh, and then he opens up the door, he looks inside. It's empty. There's nobody there. Yeah, so he's about to leave, and then he has a second look. Yeah, and then he sees this old monk sitting in the corner, yeah, way over there somewhere. Yeah. He didn't see him first of all. Yeah. And then he uh, goes up to him, yeah, and then he sits down in his presence. Uh, and when you go up to someone like that, who might be an arahant, uh, because they have no ego, because they have no sense of self, uh, you feel so accepted. Yeah. You don't feel that there's any kind of uh, irritation or any kind of rejection. Whatever qualities you have as a person will be accepted by a person like that. Uh, there's no kind of negativity whatsoever, no judgment whatsoever. Uh, and that is why he didn't see him in the first place. Because the people we often see in the world uh, are those who make something out of themselves. Uh, here I am, look at me, kind of people, yeah? Because they have a sense of self. But someone with no sense of self, they kind of disappear into the background. And this is kind of the beauty of these kind of people. So uh, um, this is often, and when what happens, Ajahn Brahm said, he felt so at ease, he felt so relaxed, yeah? He just sat down, he didn't feel any need to say anything. Very often when we are in the company of other people, we feel like we have to speak. There's a pressure to talk. If you just remain silent, people think you're a bit strange, yeah? You just sit there silently, people think, what's wrong with you? But we should, maybe we should do that more often, just sit silently, and then kind of allow people to think that we are a bit nuts, but that's okay. And uh, just uh, because that often is kind of more accepting, you know, all this talking all the time is often just creates more papancha and more busyness in the mind anyway. Uh, and that is a beautiful state if you can give that to someone else, a sense of acceptance uh, without criticizing them and then seeing, seeing what happens to them. Uh, if they're not open for anything, as you suggest, uh, there isn't much you can do except to be kind. Uh, and kindness is often always the most powerful medicine to turn people around. Uh, once they feel accepted, then they might listen. If they don't feel accepted, they are going to be defensive. That's just the nature of the human mind. Again, easy to say, difficult to do, but 
See what you can do. Yeah? Tell her if you can think of one tiny thing about it that is nice. Tell her, oh, I really appreciate that by you. Yeah? Even if it's just tiny, miny, miny. If you can't think of them yourself, ask other people what her good qualities are. Eventually you'll come up with something. Yeah? And then encourage that by saying, wow, you know, I'm so happy you do, do this. And then maybe she will start to think differently about that. Uh, because everyone wants to have positive feedback. Uh, so if she gets some positive feedback, uh, it may actually, uh, you know, may actually do something. Uh. Anyway, it is not easy, but uh, see what you can do. Uh. Okay. Dear Ajahn, thanks for your inspiring insights on removing resentment sutta. How does one deal skillfully with uh, uh, Sangha and lay committee members of the Buddhist organizations who do not use open and honest communication and do not listen to their members' views? Both traditional and non-traditional Buddhists often respond passively to this situation. We are not... um, not at calling we're not good at calling out the elephant in the room we shut our eyes and pretend nothing happened lest we make some bad karma would appreciate your insight thanks metta and gratitude um yes uh, committee work and that sort of thing is often very difficult and uh, sometimes you know uh, Buddhist Society of WA, we have Ajahn Brahm on the committee, and even Ajahn Brahm is not able to keep peace on that committee sometimes. And still they argue, and still there is problems. Uh, so it, is quite, it goes quite deep, yeah? and it is the kind of nature when people have to make decisions and run things, and very often kind of egos and ideas and all this kind of stuff gets into it. Uh, and sometimes it's just different perceptions of, of reality. Uh. So if um, sometimes what you do on the, the committee sometimes I think just uh, um, if, if other people are not open and honest in communication and do not listen to their members views you know sometimes there isn't there isn't there really isn't that much you can do about it very often uh, except kicking them off the committee and don't kind of you know vote them back in again next time uh, and trying to find some new committee members uh, and find someone you like to stand in their position perhaps and get them voted in uh, Sometimes you have to do that sort of stuff to change things around. Uh, But very often the best kind of committee members uh, are the ones who don't say very much at committee meetings, uh, the ones who just go about their duties uh, to do what needs to be done for that Buddhist society uh, and don't really take too much part in all the uh, arguing and the discussions and that sort of stuff. Uh, So you just do your duties, whatever that is. If you're the treasurer, you do your treasurer duties. Uh, You do not really need to do much much beyond that uh, and then you are already doing a very a very positive service probably the far most important service uh, just by quietly going about doing your doing your things uh. and there's lots of ways of doing that yeah you uh, can be be the manager of retreats like this uh, and what a wonderful thing that is uh, then you are not too involved with a committee presumably i don't have no idea actually but i presume so and then you can just go about that quietly uh, and then you are doing a very good service for everyone or you can be the cook on this kind of uh, retreat or you can do other things for the buddha side and not even be on the committee at all uh, but do other things behind the scenes uh, have a kind of a a um a job that is, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, given out without being on the committee, etc., etc. There's always things we can do. So uh, how to get committees to work is one of the biggest conundrums in samsara. Nobody knows. No, I don't think anyone has ever made committees work in samsaric existence. If there was a kind of clear way of doing that, we would already be doing it. And we're not actually... Uh, we have a really hard time doing that. So... Uh, I I would say that uh, uh, yeah so that's basically what I would I would say don't try to don't don't try to sort out the impossible because sometimes there is no solution to these kind of things sometimes it matters a lot who is in charge on the committee what kind of people you have as president for example uh, right now we have a a president of the BSWA who is kind of a very good man a very gentle person and a very a kind of grandfatherly kind of person. And usually that tends to bring people around. When you have a few good members like that, it tends to you know, quiet down the other ones. So make sure that some of the leaders of the committee at least are you know, good people. And then 
uh, hopefully that will uh, make things easier. Uh, but it's difficult, yeah? Don't expect too much, uh, and sometimes just do your work in the background, uh, and that often is, uh, is the best. Uh, I'm sorry, some of these things are just too difficult for me. I just really don't know what to say, uh, and uh, I, I wish I did, but uh, there you are. Uh. Hi, Ajahn. Thank you for sharing the story about the person who went to regression. I know what I need to program my next rebirth, should I fail to finish uh, what needs to be done in this life. <laughs> yeah. uh, your story gives me confidence that the work I've done uh, will not be wasted. Uh, there's no question here, just a big thank you. Okay, wonderful. Uh, yeah, So, and actually that is kind of the, the big learning, the big lesson yeah, from that story, is that uh, when you see how conditioned you are, you really want to recondition yourself. Uh, when you see those problems that you carry on from one life to the next one, uh, and you know that the personality you have now, you're going to carry it with you into your next life, uh, it's kind of scary because all the bad habits you have now, you take those with you as well. Uh, you kind of don't, there's no kind of get out of jail card. Uh, so you really want to do something with those bad qualities that you have now so you don't take them with you into the future. That's kind of one of the big takeaways here. And also build up some good qualities. Like when you start in your next life, you already are a good meditator, yeah? You're already uh, really kind and really gentle and all of these kind of things. So you have a big advantage when you kind of come into the world next time as a deva, presumably, of course, next life. But, uh, you know, whatever it is that you come back as, you already have a big advantage already. And this is, of course, the thing about rebirth is that uh, it is not as if you start back at square one again. You uh, start back wherever you finish off in this life because you develop the mind and that is the mind you take with you into the future. So, um, yes, indeed. So that's good. So now you have some a bit more encouragement to practice well in this life. That's great. Okay, dear Ajahn, I have gained so much from the Sutta explanations. Thank you. Uh, PaliAudio.com has free Sutta recordings. Okay, PaliAudio.com. Okay, would you care to comment on the accuracy of their Sutta translations? Uh, Yeah. 37 Bhojangas for a start. Yeah. So I Googled it and then Bhante uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi said he clarified it. Yeah. Um, and then he said, in fact, actually, he had, you know, years ago made that mistake. Yeah. And then I then that sent me on this other Pali audio and I thought, well, that could be quite handy. Like I drive a lot yeah. to visit friends and if you've got a four hour drive, you can listen. Oh, so this this is just uh, this is like reading of suttas, is it? Uh, yeah, sutta readings, so, uh, yeah. It's um, I think the main yeah. person, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten his surname, is Rupert. He's Gethin. Yeah, the Rupert Gethin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he's quite good. He's uh, he's a good, quite a good translator. He, uh, he he's been involved with the Pali Tech Society in the yeah. UK, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so he's quite good. So I think that should be fairly reliable, uh, yeah. what he does. Uh, but you can also now go to Sutta Central, uh, and they also can actually listen to the Sutta readings from there as well. Uh, yeah, they're I actually read. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you can do that. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. So you can just listen to the suttas raw without any comment to just kind of get the reading, uh, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So, um, yeah, it is a very nice way of spending your time if you have to commute and things to actually listen to Dhamma talks or Sutta readings or Sutta explanations while you travel. It's a great way of making that commuting kind of more useful. So. Mm. And then also you're less prone to road rage when you listen to the Dhamma, right? Uh, Road rage doesn't happen so easily. Huh? Oh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So, but I mean, when you hear the Dhamma, yeah, no, no, road rage kind of goes down when you hear the Dhamma. So you, when somebody kind of cuts in in front of you, you kind of stay more calm. You don't kind of take out the gun and shoot them or anything like that. Uh, that's kind of the advantage. Uh, yeah, I'm just kind of saying some advantages of listening to Dhamma while you're driving. Yeah, no, I'm, be, I'm just being silly. Yeah, exactly. There you are. Yeah, yeah. good. Okay. Uh, dear Ajahn, my partner only sees the negative side of life and is always complaining about everything. I am concerned that he may go into depression. He has been following Buddhism for a few years but hasn't found much peace. Please advise. Uh, bring him here, yeah, to the retreat, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll sort him out. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so uh, he ob- he obviously needs some more advice. If he is following Buddhism already, it's actually good. Yeah, it's already a really good start because it means that there is a good chance that he will find the way out of this. Uh, because this is the kind of thing that Buddhist teaching specializes in: how to think in the right way, how to think in a more positive way, look at the bright side of life. <laughs> as it says in that famous movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, so just b- bring him around. Bring him to list, come to listen to Ajahn Brahm when Ajahn Brahm is in town uh, and listen to some good Dhamma teachings. And eventually he will, he will find the way out. The fact that he's interested in Buddhism means that there's a lot of hope, a lot of chances that he will change his way, ways of doing things. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, there should be lots of opportunities there. Uh, so maybe what you can do is find some nice Dhamma talks for him that actually talk about uh, positive thinking and uh, you know using your mind in a positive way. And you can do that as a gift for him, Christmas gift or birthday gift or something like that. Here, wow, look, check this out. This is really good stuff. Uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy this. Uh, and then uh, he might be negative about it. But uh, <laughs> uh, at least give it a shot, yeah? Give it a try and then see what happens. And if you are... Uh, if you're lucky, then that will kind of work out. Sometimes you have to make it easy for people. You have to give it into their hands. Otherwise, it, uh, they may, it may never actually happen. Hi, Ajahn. Who is your favorite character in the Pali Canon beside the Buddha? <laughs> My favorite person. I don't like character because character sounds like something out of fiction. Yeah, the fictional character. Your favorite person. These are real people in the Pali Canon. So uh, who is my favorite person, real person in the Pali Canon? I think my my favorite person is Venerable Sariputta. I think I like him the most because uh, he is kind of supposed to be the wisest one. And I think I've always been attracted to the idea of wisdom. Wisdom is, uh, because wisdom is the highest kind of spiritual faculties. Uh, if you're wise, all the other spiritual faculties get uh, kind of stabilized because of the wisdom. So everything else comes into place. Uh, and wisdom is obviously what makes you happy, makes you a balanced person, because you understand what you have to do in the world and what you shouldn't be doing. Uh, so I've always been very attracted to the idea of wisdom. Uh, so I really like Venerable Sariputta. He is really cool. Uh, and uh, <laughs> cool. that's actually interesting because in the suttas they have a, you know, one of the epithets of an arahant is Siti Bhutto, which literally means the cool one. Huh? Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> You've become cool. Yeah? And uh, it's, <laughs> it's kind of nice from a kind of modern point of view. Huh? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's him. And uh, I, wonder, I think, you know, uh, I was just thinking about whether there was any, were any nuns that kind of I, is especially inspiring. But um, the problem is that there is so little information about the nuns in general. Uh, there isn't that much there. It's much more difficult to actually uh, to uh, you know have any kind of clear opinion about the nuns in the suttas in the same way that you have about the monks. Uh, uh, but uh, there are some contemporary, very interesting living examples of nuns who are very inspiring. Uh, people like Ayakema, who kind of started the, uh, the nuns' island in Sri Lanka. People like um, uh, uh, Tenzin Palmo, who stayed in the cave in the snow for three years or whatever it was. Uh, and uh, people, you know, there are, f- there are a fair number of nuns in the present day who also are very inspiring and do a very good job, job out of being, uh, you know, good spiritual practitioners. Uh, and sometimes it's important to have a, 
inspirational person of your own gender because sometimes we sometimes we kind of identify better with our own gender maybe we shouldn't but we still do sometimes regardless of whether we should or shouldn't so it's i think it's important for men to have men male role models and for women to have female role models at least sometimes i think that's very useful because of the way we identify with these things so uh uh, read the Terigata. In the Terigata, you find all the inspirational poems of the uh, f- uh, female arahants at the time of the Buddha, uh, and uh, lots of things in there are, are very inspirational. Uh. Okay, dear Ajahn, I I didn't, but aha. Okay, the Beatles, all you need is love, the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. Okay, that you were talking about the, that Beatle or the Stones yesterday. I thought it probably was a re- relevance, to something about that, yeah? Both contain elements of the Dhamma. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yes. Uh, uh, indeed, they both do indeed uh, contain elements of Dhamma. Yeah. I'm not sure if, they, if their ideas were very Dhammic, but uh, they, if you read them in the right way, yes, they do contain elements of Dhamma. I'm not sure what, uh, uh, what the Rolling Stones meant by I can't get no satisfaction, but uh, <laughs> I don't really know. And all you need is love. Again, it is, uh, it is probably not exactly the same metta that we're talking about in Buddhism, uh, but they're kind of getting roughly in the kind of area. So yes, uh, elements of Dhamma, indeed. Okay, good. Um, okay, what constitutes uh, the now is nebulous. Sometimes the uh, present is viscous and uh, clings to past moments. Other times uh, what is now arrives joltingly as though it hadn't been uh, there before. How should we think about the now in the present moment awareness? Should it be smooth and connected to previous moments? Should it stand alone? How do you conceive the present uh, in meditation? Um, it, it, the idea is ideally it should be smooth. Yeah, it should be like a continuous awareness, and I, I think it's important not to try to make it too intellectual. What it means. But just kind of feel it as you go along. And basically, it's just about not holding on to the past and going into the future. And you are quite right. Sometimes it can be a bit sticky. So suddenly you kind of find yourself hanging on to the past a little bit, just a little bit. And indeed, this is one of the things that you do uncover during your meditation, is your ability to be more precisely in the present moment. Not to hang on to anything, but to go with the flow all along yeah, this is kind of the purpose of this. And of course, if you do a simple thing like watching the breath, for example, usually there isn't very much point in hanging on to the past because the breath is just the breath. It's only you tend to cling on to the past to go into the future if there's some interest in that future and the past. So the more focused you are on the breath, the more you will also tend to be in the present moment. You won't be actually going anywhere else. So just... So I think that is the best way to look at it. And then as you then, the joy arises with the breath and all of that, then your mind starts to get glued onto the present moment as as a consequence. So um, uh, in daily life, it is different. In daily life, you're not going to be able to have the same kind of mindfulness. Your mind will very often veer into the past and the future and uh, you won't be able to uh, be clear about the present moment at all times. Uh, but in the meditation, you should be able to see roughly what's going on. Uh, and uh, sometimes you need to sharpen up your mindfulness a little bit uh, to make it more present. Uh, and sometimes that happens simply by increasing the, uh, the sense of joy and the happiness that is here right now. Uh. So, okay. And we have the last question uh, for tonight, dear Ajahn, thank you again for the wonderful teachings. Humans are pr- humans are procreate procreative. Is is wanting a child, a craving, uh, and part of sensual pleasure as described in the five hindrances? Uh, if yes, how do we overcome the desire of having children? Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, 
Um, uh, is wanting a child, is it a craving? It certainly is a craving. Yeah, you want, it's de definitely a craving. It's definitely a desire. Is it part of sensual pleasure? It is probably more part of uh, uh, the, the sense of self. Yeah, the sense of self probably gets satisfied by having a child. Uh, you feel that you have someone you can care for uh, and you want to have that feeling of having someone you can care for and watch them grow up and all of that. Uh, it is an extension of your own sense of self. I think that is probably more likely what it is. Uh, is it described in the five hindrances? Uh, um, pr probably not as such, but uh, once you have that child, then of course you, it, 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 pro it may very well end up being described in those five hindrances. There will be attachment there, yeah? There will be all of these kind of things. Uh, and uh, that will obviously, you know, that will, down the, uh, down the track, uh, it will uh, lead to problems. But um, it's nothing wrong with having a child, you know? I, I'm not here to tell you you shouldn't have a child. If you want to have a child and you think that's what you should be doing with your life, then do so. But if you do it, do it well. Do it from a perspective of Dhamma. Do it in the right way. And make sure that you uh, make, think about it properly before you do it. Because obviously it ties you down enormously. Having a child means that the next 20 years of your life are going to be completely tied up. And all you're going to be doing is looking after that child. Almost everyone who, says, who has a child says that. Yeah? It really makes you completely, you lose all your depend, independence and you are tied down uh, with that so much. So speak to people who already have children uh, and ask them, not just to anyone, uh, but to people who are Buddhist and who practice the path, uh, and ask them what it is like. Uh, try to find someone with a bit of wisdom, yeah, who have some insight into this, uh, and find out whether it is really worthwhile. Uh, very often this craving comes from the fact that you probably had children in a past life, uh, so because you had children in the past life, you are used to that idea and then you want to have it again in this life because you did it in the past life. Yeah? So it comes back again from life to life and it re-arises and that craving is there. But um, um, yeah, so you have to decide for yourself. It is not, not wrong. We need good parents in this world. We need parents who can bring up people in a good way and create a better world in that way. So uh, it is not uh, bad or evil, anything like that, uh, but make sure that you know what you're doing so you can make an informed decision and you can live your life in a way that is most meaningful. Uh. Okay, that is uh, all for tonight. Uh, so uh, have another good night's rest uh, and we'll see you again tomorrow morning. Yeah.